Hi there, welcome to the Ravens Call. I am Eric Ward Weaver Shervin, Go the Other Ridgar Folk here in East Texas, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ravens Call. This is a program where I ramble on about different heathen related subjects, just whatever strikes my fancy, sets my mind on fire at the time. So Big UPG warning at the beginning of this episode, Uh, like all my episodes, everything that appears in my show, on my channels, is just my take on heathenry today. I'm a modern heathen, I am uh, more organic in my approach, and I'm not what you would call a fluffy bunny or hardcore recon. So I have kind of a different approach to heathenry, and hopefully I'm not shaking my cord too much there, but I do have a slightly different approach to heathenry. And it's very what I would call middle of the road, plus a big focus on grassroots heathenry. So today, well, before we get started, more housekeeping stuff, subscribe down below, ding the bell, hit like on the videos, comment, interact. I will get back to you guys as soon as I can. I'm going to be honest with you guys. It has been ridiculous lately. I have been so busy with work that I'm having to squeeze these episodes in where I can. And as you can tell from my surroundings, um, that includes while I'm away on business trips. So by the time this airs, I will already be back at home. So I don't mind telling you guys, I had to come up to Dallas for a couple of days on uh, training. And uh, it, it just, I hate Dallas. <laughs> no, no, no offense to Dallasites, but I'm not a city boy. Not in the slightest. I can't stand it. I hate being up here. I hate hotels, the whole nine yards. But here I am doing what I got to do for my company, for my business, for my people. So that's uh, that's the thing. So anyway, that's why I am broadcasting today from my hotel room. It's about the only option that I've got uh, because <laughs> in order to have something live to go out uh, today, which is, well, your today and my next week, uh, I got to be able to film where I can so that I can have time to edit and all of that other fun stuff. And I can promise you I'm not going to have an opportunity over the next few days and that's going to kill my edit time. So that's why we're broadcasting from here. And uh, I may do another episode from here. I'm not certain yet. It depends on how this goes and how my timing is because I actually have homework for my training that I should be doing right now and will be doing here in a little bit. Don't think I'm shirking it. Uh, I'm just prioritizing time uh, because I think I'm going to need the phone here in a little bit. Uh, So anyway, let's go ahead and get started on today's episode. Now, this is a special request, another viewer request from uh, Brandon. You guys have seen him on the channel before in a couple of my videos. Uh, Brandon the Cat. And uh, he hit me with a pretty interesting one, uh, one that he's seen pop up online in different discussions and just in his own interactions with people. And that's, uh, you know, recently we did an unpackaging of the term uh, tribalism. And so, you know, that got him on the subject of uh, baggage and religious baggage. And uh, the subject, of course, was there seems to be a holdover amongst modern heathens that have come from a Judeo-Christian background Uh, largely, that there needs to be some sort of uh, divine judgment, that there has to be some kind of religious persecution, not persecution really is discipline, um, consequence, things like that, for uh, ill deeds and whatnot. And uh, it's kind of in, in keeping with the kind of Christian idea of hell, purgatory, um, those kind of, uh, you know, consequences for ill deeds. And he was asking, you know, what the heathen equivalent is, or is there a heathen equivalent? Is this something that's just like off base and is not appropriate for the conversation? And yes and no. 
Um, there is consequence for ill deeds. There's consequence for ill, Ill actions, as we've talked about before in dealing with weird Norlog um, in, in the social construct kind of way. But you know, this is the first time we'll sit down and actually look at a specific video on the concept of consequence and whatnot in that re relationship, in that respect. Now, I know a lot of people are familiar with um, the concept of hell, the concept of purgatory, uh, these kind of things, and, and the either punishment or redemptive qualities, uh, the crucible aspect of burning away um, sin and ill deed in order to be able to regain uh, salvation or whatever. I'm not entirely certain myself because I'm not extremely well versed in Christian mythology. Here's my disclaimer at the beginning of this, guys. This is something that I haven't really thought of in relation to a video before because I don't share that baggage. Okay, I did not come from a Christian background. I was not brought up in the church. I was not. Uh, I, I learned about a lot of this stuff third hand later on in life, and my views on these things, as far as you know, the Christian mythos and everything like that, is a bit different because I don't. I, I wasn't brought up in it. I was never told this is the truth. Blah blah blah. Except by outsiders that had no uh, no bearing on my actual perception of truth in the world. So by the time it came around and I was really deeply exposed to it, um, I, I didn't have the baggage and the ingrained issues that a lot of people coming up through the church or through religious households might have. And so I come at this a little bit differently because I don't think about it in those terms, you know? I also don't have necessarily uh, the greatest framework to work from on the Judeo-Christian side of things, so I'm just gonna focus on the heathen side because that's all I know, okay? Uh, well, it's not all I know, but it is the primary thing that I know. Um, of course, I've studied a bunch of different faiths over the years, um, learned a lot about different, uh, different cultures and their approach to things that has helped me kind of better understand my heathenry and why, why I'm heathen, you know? Um, I've done a lot of exploration over the years, especially in those early teenage years before I discovered heathenry. So, which I discovered heathenry about my mid-teens or something like that. Or at least I discovered that's what you called it. Uh, it was pretty much heathen before that, I just didn't realize that it had a name and that uh, there was any kind of other people that, that did it. And then uh, it exploded as I went through and learned and met people and uh, really got to experience the culture and, and the society. So, back to the subject at hand. Um, the concept of some kind of divine punishment. Is that something that's really prevalent in heathenry? That, that depends, alright? Um, one of the things that it depends on is how seriously you take a couple of phrases from the Voluspa, okay? Now the Voluspa itself, we know this, the, the, the sayings of the seeress, the uh, prophecy of the seeress, and uh, the, of course the premise for this one is, exists in the Poetic Edda, and uh, the premise behind it of course is that Odin has approached this Volva, this seeress, that he has raised from the dead, and he is coercing information out of her. Um, it's, there is a, there, there's an article out there that you guys really need to look up. Um, I keep mentioning it and I keep meaning to get the reference material out there and hopefully I will be able to at least give you guys a specific reference to the uh, the, the periodical that it appears in. Uh, but it's called The Author of the Voluspa and I think I've referenced the author on, uh, on one of my shows before. But the premise behind The Author of the Voluspa is that 
it introduces the idea that the depth of knowledge that is expressed within the Voluspa is concurrent with um, an individual who is well and deeply versed in the lore, in, uh, in, in the heathenry. But the timing of the poem seems to be somewhere in the vicinity of the Christianization of Iceland, which would be in year 1000. And so the theory is that the Voluspa was written by someone who was most likely the son of a Volva, the son of uh, you know, a, a woman that is extremely well versed in the lore and in the heathen worldview, etc., 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 and that this influences, he would have been brought up in that. He would have been taught those stories from a young age, so that would be the framework that he would be working with. And here he is witnessing the death of heathenry in Iceland and the, the taking over of Christianity. So the story on the Voluspa, of course, is that it covers the cosmology uh, and cosmogony <laughs> both in, uh, of heathenry from the creation in Genungagap, Aymir, uh, Bor and Buri and all of that uh, all the way up through the arrival of mankind through Ashkenembla and all the way to the twilight of the gods in Ragnarok. Uh, Ragnarok, this is like one of the primary sources for Ragnarok. Uh, it does appear in some other ones. Um, there's some theories as to how much of Ragnarok is truly heathen and how much of it is syncretism. And uh, syncretism, if, you, if you're not familiar with the term syncretism, it's a key word for today. Uh, it's something we desperately need to understand for today's conversation. Syncretism is when one culture or religion incorporates the belief structure or elements of another religion slash culture into their own. Um, a modern equivalent would be what we would call cultural appropriation. You want to use a hot button buzz term that doesn't really mean anything. Um, and that's, that's what we're talking about there. Not to give any disrespect to the cultures at play here, but this is something that's been going on for a very long time. It's just the clinical term for it is syncretism. And so a good classical example of syncretism at play is if you look at the Romans when they conquered Greece, um, the Romans were really big about incorporating the belief structures of their conquered people into their own belief structures. Um, this helps with the cohesion of society, um, subjugating new people is a heck of a lot easier when you just kind of suck up their belief structure into your own. Um, this happened a lot with Christianity and heathenry uh, after the conversion because there's a lot of things that we know of where Christianity experienced syncretism with heathenry. Um, a lot of our traditions around Yule were brought into the Christmas traditions, including even the time of year that it occurs, uh, because my understanding is that the, the birth of their Christ figure is actually a different time of year. Again, I'm not a scholar on that, so don't quote me, um, but I have spoken with people that were, and the idea is that uh, the timing is off based on star position, clothing, all that other stuff. Um, Again, not my wheelhouse, so I'm not going to go too deep into that. But, you know, there's uh, Easter is a wonderful example of syncretism at play because so many of the practices and traditions that go into uh, modern Easter are holdovers from other religions. It's not just one religion that seemed to have influenced this, but rather a, a grouping of religions and the uh, associations therewith. Um, you know, Easter, of course, is 
um, the Anglo-Saxon goddess uh, Easter, and or Easter is typically how she's pronounced. And uh, so, I mean, they even borrowed the name from that. It is not from Ishtar. It's not from Isis. It's from Easter, um, and that's one of those you know, key syncretism things where you see that, that clear transition uh, from here to here. There's like a one-to-one -one ratio. So syncretism has been a thing for ages. And so there's a lot of syncretism that occurred within the lore, which is part of the reason why a lot of people will kind of, some people will out and out bash the lore as far as like the Eddas and whatnot. I use the term lore loosely because the lore itself actually incorporates the Eddas, the sagas, um, contemporary writers uh, such as the Venerable Bede and things like that. Uh, Saxo Grammaticus has a lot of stuff that's key in giving us kind of an, Im an image of heathenry in the day. Um, there are no primary sources still extant. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's just not something that was done. That's something you hear me push on the channel a lot, is that we need to be writing things down. We need to be doing things today to record our heathenry so that there are sources for later generations to go back and look to. I've even written a book on, uh, this is an inside book. This is not one that's out for publication or anything. Um, the the Rydgar Folkenbolk, which is the book of the Rydgar Folk. And it is uh, kind of a an enumeration of the generic belief structure of the tribe, things like that, some of our Thu that's put down into, uh, into writing, so that future generations can have that. And I feel that that's extremely important. Uh, and this is why, because we can't go back and look at primary sources. Everything that we have is written down after the time and by third parties. Even the Icelandic sagas were not written by the Icelanders of the time. It's not like, you know, um, Rafinkel wrote his own saga. It's not like it was written by someone who was watching Rafinkel uh, with the horse and all of that stuff. It, it didn't play out that way. It's written down later on, um, coming from sources that we consider to be uh, fairly accurate, especially with a lot of the research and everything that we've done in recent times. We have found a lot of things that coincide with the Icelandic sagas that give a lot of credence to uh, their veracity. Now, of course, with the Icelandic sagas, you're going to run into things like uh, Draugr and some of the more fantastic elements that kind of call them into question. What does all of this mean? Why is he rambling on this? It's not actually a ramble, it's context in this, this specific instance. The Voluspa itself seems to have been written by a gentleman who was probably the son of a Volva, brought up in all of this, who was experiencing the death of his culture uh, and, and the taking over of another culture. And this poem is very much likely his expression of that going on. So this is probably the closest we're going to have to a primary source in that respect. But it's a guy's poem that he wrote about this event and the feelings and emotions that he was expressing and feeling in that time uh, put into the context of heathenry. It's like um, heathenry's death song. And uh, said, what, Draumer, I think is the term for that. Uh, so it's like heathenry's Draumer. Uh, it, is, it is an homage to heathenry as it was and a austere acceptance of what is to come. Because if you look at the end of the Voluspa, after Ragnarok, after the new tree, after Leif and Liftras are come out of the tree, and Baldur returns, there's some key uh, coincidence there with uh, the Christ figure in that respect. 
and then it speaks of being under one God. And this is very evidently influenced by the church in that respect. So the wholeness of the Voluspa is the birth, creation, life, death, and replacement of heathenry. That is how the plot line of the Voluspa runs. Now, one of the things that is referenced in the Voluspa with regards to any kind of divine punishment, any kind of divine uh, consequence for... Uh, and it's not even divine, it's just cosmological. Uh, divine consequence for ill deeds appears in the Voluspa. Now, I'm going to reference it real quick, and I'm going to pull from my favorite translation, which is the Hollander translation. Yes, I know most people this, this, these days um, prefer the Jackson Crawford translation. Um, I love Jackson Crawford's stuff. He translates it himself. Um, wonderful, very approachable language. But I like the poetic styling of the Hollander translation because it does still incorporate that that poetic styling and so understandably that's kind of uh, where I would fall. Stanza 35 of the Voluspa reads, From the east there flows through Fetterdales a stream height slith, filled with swords and knives. Waist deep wade there through water swift Main-sworn men and murderous, eke those who betrayed a trusted friend's wife, there gnaws knee-dog, naked corpses. There the wolf rends men. Wit ye more, or how? Now, I love that whole wit ye more, or how, would you know more, or how. Um, that's very reminiscent. I, I love that it's, it's uh, it appears in uh, Starship Troopers, the movie. Uh, would you know more? How? Um, I, I can't help but think that that's a direct reference uh, because it's too spot on. Uh, I haven't verified that, but I feel it deep inside. Anyway, random aside. So, and it goes on to talk more about uh, Nastrond being this, the, uh, the bank of corpses where uh, Hell's Hall stands. And uh, there's, there's mention throughout of uh, you know rivers of poison, things like that. And this is the key where we mostly see that mention of main sworn men and murderous um, liars, oath breakers, uh, murderers, um, those that have you know betrayed a good friend's wife. You're talking about uh, adulterers and things like that. Now, <laughs> here's the thing: there's not mention of that anywhere else in the lore. Uh, maybe some some spots here and there, but nothing with any kind of weight to it that really supports the idea that if you did ill, you got sent to this river of knives and swords at the base of Yggdrasil uh, to be gnawed upon by the serpents uh, under Nidog's stead. Um, it's, it's a syncretism kind of thing. This is very obviously a Christian influence that has been played into this, or Judeo-Christian influence, um, where this kind of thing plays in. Now, obviously, there's got to be some kind of support for this because, you know, he's obviously extremely well-versed in heathen lore. Um, so I can't with 100% certainty say that this river of swords, etc., etc., doesn't exist in some case, um, but it doesn't really jive with the rest of the mythos as far as we know. There hasn't been a great deal of mention of it, like when Loki is cast out of the Aesir for his betrayal, he's not sent down to the land of murderers and uh, liars and cheats. 
he is bound beneath a dripping serpent uh, with the entrails of his own son and left to writhe as his wife Sigyn sits there and catches the venom in the bowl. Then when she steps away, it drips on his face. He shakes, earthquakes, etc., etc., etc. I think, and I can't say with any certainty, but I think this would be an opportune moment for them to mention this. Um, there are mentions in the sagas of Draugr, of Ill, ill-tempered men and women, uh, mostly men. Uh, matter of fact, only men that I can think of as far as references go. But ill, ill-mannered people that have come back, uh, not necessarily come back from the dead, but their bodies maintain animation. Um, my theory on Draugr is that uh, when the soul dissipates, there's a piece of that old that still animates the body, even though the hammer and the rest of the soul parts and the mind have dissipated. Um, it's the physiological part of the body that still maintains a certain spark of animating uh, energy, and therefore certain aspects of the uh, personality remain simply because it's ingrained in the brain, uh, but it's a shadow of the previous individual, etc. And that's a whole different other conversation. Um, I can do one on Draugr later if we want to, but it's not really pertinent. The idea being that in these instances, there's no mention of the souls going to Nastrand or down into this this river of swords. Uh, they are still very much tied to the profane world. They're still very much walking the earth, and uh, they are zombies, for lack of a better term. It doesn't really coincide perfectly with uh, zombies as far as pop media culture goes. Uh, they're usually black of skin, darkened, of course, by the uh, settling of blood and whatnot. They're usually t- ten times stronger uh, than mortal men and very ill of temper and usually rise up out of the grave and wreak havoc until they are moved away, bodies are burned, heads are taken off and laid by their feet kind of thing. So this seems like it would be an opportune moment to bring this up. So again, the lack of proof is not proof of lack of existence. Um, that's just, the lack of proof is not proof in and of itself. Uh, that's a scientific theory element that you just can't help but take into account. So yes, I mean, I could be wrong in some of these instances, but my basic understanding is no, this seems to be an isolated incident within the lore. It just so happens to be in the Voluspa, which is next to the Havamal, one of the most quoted, if not more quoted than the Havamal, uh, pieces of lore that we have. And that's, you know, it's like the first thing in the Poetic Edda in most translations, uh, followed immediately by the Havamal. There's a lot of other really good poems that go into the cosmology of the world, and they don't focus on this. This isn't a main focus on things. Heathenry is what we like to refer to as a life-affirming religion as opposed to a life-denying religion. Um, A lot of your more ascetic religions that focus on the afterlife are what we call life-denying religions, wherein the main focus is not this life. This life is in preparation for the afterlife. In heathenry, it's quite the opposite. Um, There's not a lot of focus on the afterlife and a great deal of focus on this life. You guys can hear the sirens in the background. Dallas, yeah. So this is a key thing here in that there just isn't a whole lot of focus. A lot of the things that we see as far as the main focus on dying in battle and going to Valhalla, that's a warrior cult thing. And stories of wartime survive. Uh, they're, they're exciting. They're you know important to write down. The 
stories of the farmers that go through and uh, just live normal everyday lives or the artisans that create great art but are you know otherwise not exactly exciting or noteworthy these don't get written down these don't get recorded into the annals of history so we get the warrior cult stuff because that's exciting and that was worth writing down that's also what a large portion of these authors writing these sources experienced they were on the other end of the sword or at least their people were on the other end of the sword and so they got to experience the warrior cult out in the field and not a lot of what was going on at home so <clears throat> even even uh ibn fadlan's writing were explorers they were traders that were out trying to create a a, a route that's how they ended up in what would become russia and that's who he ran into so obviously you're not experiencing vikings or heathens as they were at home um you're you're experiencing traders as they are out on the field and that's rough that's gruff that's you know you're not going to see the cleanliness of the heathen at home you're not going to see uh the farmer and the responsibility to family and things like that you're going to see a warband who's out trying to make their own, you know? And even then, they're not technically a warband, uh, but there was some elements of that, obviously, uh, because they needed to be. They were forging new, new directions and things like that, so they had to be rough and tumble. Now, all of that to say that within the lore, I just don't see, other than this, this mention of the River of Swords and the, you know, kind of purgatory-esque, uh, hell-esque kind of... Uh, divine retribution you know this is i think very much tied to that syncretism occurring in the story uh we're not even i'd have to go back and look and see what the translations of the original voluspa look like as to whether or not this was even present in the original text or if this was possibly added in later most likely it originated in the original text and it's just part of the syncretism because again by the time everything comes full circle the voluspa ends a very christian tale uh, you have the return of the favored son and the return of life and light to the world, this resurrection, uh, new life, new world, new one God. Um, people don't tend to mention that a whole lot when you talk about the Voluspa, but the Voluspa ends with rule of one divine entity. And, uh, you know, Balder kind of takes a secondary role in that, even though he is said to have come back from the dead. So, how then does that play out how then do we see uh, retribution or consequence or punishment or whatever element whatever tack you want to take on it how do we see the consequences for negative actions play out for those that have passed for those that have gone and joined the ancestors in the mound well a lot of that we see in the social structure of heathenry as a whole those that were counter to society were cast out uh, they would have made utlog or uh, outlaws they were cast out they were spoken ill of they were survived by a poor legacy they negatively impacted the orlog of their descendants through their negative actions now as we talked a little bit about in the veneration of ancestors video last week uh, you look at you know like ancestors that did bad things may not be remembered over the horn they may be Kind of cast aside and maybe kind of forgotten or pushed away and that's an element that i think comes forward here is that that's the kind of afterlife uh, consequence that you're going to see i see it less coming from the gods and more coming from the living people of the day because 
that's where the focus of heathenry is. The ancestors are there, and the focus on the ancestors is in their interaction with the living now. Um, again, heathenry is very much about the here and now. It's very much about life. Um, that which came before feeds and informs the now. Even the future was nebulous and uh, very difficult to kind of hammer out in a heathen worldview because most of the focus was in the here and now. You know, the uh, the only things that were certain was that we were born and we will die. You know, uh, that famous reference from the Havamal as far as cattle die, kinsmen die, thyself eke soon shalt die. The one thing I know that never dies is the fame of a well-sung man. Paraphrased. I know I didn't memorize it exactly, but you get the picture. The reputation is what survives. The story is what survives. And if this individual did not have redeeming qualities, they were either remembered as a blackguard or they were just not remembered. And so that's where I see a lot more of this coming out is the consequence of the family, the consequence of society pushing them out and their souls not getting the recognition, not being fed the praise and accolades in symbol, not being hailed at the altar, being cast away. And that is a, that's very much in keeping with the heathen worldview because those that were seen as outlaws, those that were seen as individuals that were poisonous to society, they were cast out. They were not allowed within society. They were not allowed back in to be a part of that. And that's really where I see the crux of this at. Not so much as divine punishment, but as spiritual punishment uh, in the profane world. You know, there are different elements of the human soul. The soul complex is quite complex. And so it's entirely possible there are elements of the soul that go to these different places upon death. We don't know for certain because you've got to go there and then come back. And uh, the only time that happens is in the lore and it's usually tied to divinity going across to talk to hell or a vulva or someone on that side to gather information before coming back. And there's a lot of mentions of the travels and everything. If you're interested in hearing what those kind of sound like uh, from an academic standpoint, check out The Road to Hell by H.R. Ellis Davidson. That's Hilda uh, Roderick Ellis Davidson. She married. Uh, so I'm trying to remember whether or not Road to Hell was um, when she hyphenated or if it was still under uh, Ellis before she took on the Davidson. Anyway, the gist here is that it's... There's not any hard evidence on what comes in the afterlife because that wasn't really focused on. It was focused on in the stuff that occurs afterwards because the Judeo-Christian influence heavily focuses on the afterlife because that's the main focus of Judeo-Christian uh, belief structure is this acceptance into heaven, uh, the eternal life afterwards. This is just the proving ground to earn your ticket onto the big ride. Um, so... <clears throat> real life takes a second seat to the afterlife, whereas the afterlife for heathens was very much different because the focus was on here. It was on now. It was on the living. So all of that come full circle. Uh, in answer to Brandon's question, I think that a lot of what we see as far as baggage goes here is that uh, people feel the need, coming from that Judeo-Christian background, to plug into that. To, uh, that resonates with them because it resonates within a worldview that they have been indoctrinated with, taught, brought up with, enculturated with um, over you know, years and years in a lot of cases. And so they don't necessarily give a second thought to it. And so they embrace that. Now, 
I don't typically see this a lot in the conversations that I encounter online. I actually see a lot more of the focus on like Valhalla and things like that as far as the uh, reward for a glorious death for a warrior and things like that. Uh, you guys can go back and look at my views on uh, death and the afterlife in some of my previous videos, but my big focus is on the like 98% of us are going into the mound to rejoin our ancestors. Um, that's the main crux of the afterlife in my eyes. And that's where the main focus for me is on uh, the weighing and measurement of our deeds. Do they have impact? Yes, absolutely. Because the seat that you get at table with your ancestors is going to be heavily influenced by what you did with the family name while you were alive and had it because that's, the, that's what matters. You know, the surviving ancestors, um, the surviving descendants are going to be the ones that decide what your legacy is. That's what's going to survive and what's not. Are you going to be remembered for being this bastard or are you going to be remembered for being a great person? So um, that's, that's kind of the gist and all of that. I'm going to go ahead and kind of wrap it up here on this. This is a conversation that would be great over a campfire and I would love to hear other people's uh, interpretations on it, um, other references. You know, I'll go back and dig through the lore some more and see if I can come up with anything else. But at this point in time, this is... And I've read, I've read, and uh, I just, it's just not, everything that I can see is the idea of divine consequence in that respect, or cosmological consequence in the respect of going to the Sea of Knives, the River of Knives, uh, things like that. It seems to be syncretic in nature, um, as are a number of things that are existent within the lore, especially within the Eddas, because I mean, especially, especially the prose Eddas, I mean, that's you got to dig through so much stuff when you're dealing with the prosettas because you know snorri uh, snorri snorri wrote the prosettas in order to preserve the stories so that skaldic poetry would still have context um, he did not necessarily write it because he was heathen and wanted to see these things survive he was a monk and he wrote this stuff but he had to put his own spin on it um, he had to make it so that it could get published and that the church would accept it and not strike it down and censor it out. Um, so there's a whole ton of syncretism that occurs therein. There's a lot of humanization of the gods, uh, taking them from divine status and uh, making them profane in nature and uh, saying that the elevating of them to godhood status uh, is an after effect of uh, cult worship kind of thing, you know, that cult of personality style thing. Uh, where a great king was eventually seen as a god, even though he was just a man. And, um, oh, mm. is very difficult, but it's one of the only things that we have wherein really good stories survive. Like the story of Thor's journey to Hutgard Loki is, uh, it's in the Prosetta. That's where it survives. So we've just got to deal with Snorri's, uh, Snorri's add-ons and general biessery uh, with regards to the you know, nature of the lore. The Voluspa is another one of those that I think that understanding the context of where it comes from will put it in a new light. And it is very, very, I think, empowering for the poem because it takes it from being this incongruent uh, story of the lore that ends in a weird kind of strangely post-apocalyptic way um, and it puts it within the context of human emotion, uh, experiencing life through heathenry and through this this belief structure and uh, 
you know, what that experience of loss feels like. You know, his gods die in front of him, uh, and this is what he sees come out the other side of it. And it's nothing like it was before the world tree is shaken, uh, chaos reigns, and then this, this white god from the south suddenly has reign over the lands of the north. So, anyway, that's kind of my run on this. Um, take it for what you will. I'm sure you guys have your own interpretations and your own views. Uh, but this was a request, so I wanted to go ahead and toss it out there and see how, uh, how it was received, what you guys think. So please, continue to give me feedback. Um, all my contact information is down below. You guys know how to reach me. I will get back to you guys eventually. I know I think I've got two emails sitting there that I haven't responded to uh, that I really need to, but I just haven't had the opportunity to. Uh, work has been absolutely nuts, and I feel like I'm always saying that, but it's true, and it's just even more nuts now than it usually is. So thank you guys for watching. I really appreciate your feedback. Um, keep, keep giving me questions, guys. Keep giving me uh, what you guys want to see on the channel. Uh, let me know ideas for shows that you would like to see. Ask questions that you think may turn into videos. Ask questions even if you don't think they'll turn into videos because you never know what I'm going to grab and turn into a video because I just suddenly go, hey, that's a great talking point. We should bring that up on the channel and see how people like it. So I do. I look at everything that comes across the board. I look at all the comments on the YouTube feed. I don't always reply to them because a lot of times they come up while I'm working and uh, just can't and then I, I end up not getting back around to it so i like try to at least hit heart on those or something so you guys know that i see them and that I'm, I'm paying attention i've seen some really cool conversations pop up between people on there i love to see those kind of things so you know by all means please keep the feedback coming keep interacting and i will use it to build and flesh out the channel as we go along so uh without any further ado i'm gonna go ahead and wrap it up for the evening um i'm probably not gonna do another one from this location because i've got training stuff to work on so hail to you all thank you uh, may your ancestors smile on you and may your hearth fires burn bright